Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. On your mark, get set, go! Those were the last words I heard when I was 11 years old at lunch break. And the teacher, during our lunch recess, arranged for this, I guess it was a 100-meter dash. And we all, I don't know how many of us, maybe it was 50 students, we all started running to the finish line. And I think I was so enthusiastic and so keyed up that I overran myself. And all I remember was just seeing feet everywhere. And uh, I got up, and I was, I was in pain. And I went to the teacher and said I was in pain, and she looked at my elbow, and there was a little scrape, and she said, oh, you'll get over that. And I spent the afternoon in this throbbing pain. I I was just in pain all afternoon. I couldn't concentrate. And I looked at my hand. I put it on the desk, and it was like part of it was here, and the other part of it was down here. And I was looking, and I just thought it looked really strange. But I, I didn't know that it was broken. And I went home, spent the afternoon at school. Uh, School finished at 3.30, and so I went home. And my mom came home from work about 5.30. And when she came home, I went to her to tell I was in pain, and she just freaked out. She was so upset. Rushed me to the hospital. Uh, They had to break it again. It was like it was starting to set that way. Uh, And I was in a cast for about six weeks. Back then, I don't know today, I think they're modern technology, but back then it was like concrete, and it was really itchy. And I was so glad when the day came, well, when they would take it off. And so we went to the hospital, and they have some sort of a saw, and they cut it, and they opened it. And nobody explained to me that when your arm is in a cast for that long, the muscle atrophies. I had no idea. So I'm just so happy the cast is off, and I look at my arm, and it is nothing but bone and with skin over it, and I freaked out. I got really ill. I threw up all over the place. I, I nearly passed out. I just was like, what is that? And that's when I learned this notion of atrophy, that when disuse without use, muscles atrophy. And I think that this is significant in terms of understanding the body and how the body works and the spiritual parallels that God wants us to understand. I had a chance to listen to Brother Louis' sermon uh, yesterday morning and was quite delighted at how much it fit with the series of messages we've been having, beginning with Pastor Murray, with his message that we will rebuild. I gave a message about the unplayable piano And then Brother Louis spoke about mobilizing our resources for service. When Pastor Murray spoke, talking about rebuilding, he said it must be be centered on the worship of God. That anciently as Israelites were rebuilding, it had to be centered on the worship of God. Haggai was raised up as, as a prophet to tell the people to stop thinking about themselves and to prioritize God's work and to have God's priority. And then as Pastor Murray passed out the Bible to say that the answer is in this text, and we were all to open it, and then it brought to mind, I wish I could sing it for you, the great theologian, Michael Jackson, man in the mirror. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, Take a look at yourself and then make a change. Take a look at yourself and then make a change. You've got to get it right while you've got the time. Because when you close your heart, then you close your mind. Not bad. Not bad. So what I want to do for the sermon this afternoon, the time we have together, is to encourage us as a part of Christ's body to have a work orientation. That we must be workers. We must be laborers. 
the body works. And if it doesn't work, the muscles atrophy. I want to focus on the purpose of the body being first to work, or one of the purposes being to work, and another purpose being relationship. If we look at Ephesians 4, and I spent time here when we were talking about the unplayable piano, and I think it's a good metaphor, but there's something wrong with the metaphor, and there was something wrong with my understanding of Ephesians 4. In terms of what's wrong with the metaphor itself, is the piano is a passive instrument. It's waiting to be played. So Christ is going to play this piano, play this instrument, and make beautiful music with it, regardless of the fact that it may not be perfect. But I think there's a problem if we only work with that metaphor, because the piano just sits there, waiting to be played. And, and the body is a better metaphor, because the body must be active. The body must work. So the same understanding of the parts, the joints, working together, but the scripture really focuses on the body rather than a piano. And here in Ephesians 4, and verse 16, we read from whom, that is Christ, the whole body fitly joined together. So there is a lot of thought that God has put into who is in the body and where in the body they will be. It's, it's expertise of putting this piece, the pieces together. And then what we read is that it's compacted by that which every joint supplies. According to the effectual working in the measure of every part, makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So here's the metaphor right here that it's a body, not a piano. And each part is given a measure of the Holy Spirit. And as that part is effective, when it joins with other parts, that's what compacts, that's what supplies what's needed to compact the body. And I think my understanding is different now in the sense that initially I thought that every connection is a joint. And I think that's incorrect that the body is fitly joined. So it says right there, it's fitly joined. It, it doesn't mean that we have parts that go together in any configuration. It means that the parts are expertly joined. And in that expertise is the joint. And if I could sing, I would sing the hip bone is connected to the, I was going to say knee bone, but that's not right. Look at, these, look at Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. This is the passage where Ezekiel is given this vision of a resurrected Israel, the valley of the dry bones. But in working with this metaphor that the scripture gives us of the body, the Christ being, Christ's church being the body, his body, fitly joined together. In Ezekiel 37 and verse 1, he says, The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. So it's just a valley that's just full of bones. So think of the bones as the parts. And caused me to pass by them round about, and behold, there were very many in the open valley. And lo, they were very dry. So he walked around and he just saw how many bones were in the valley. And, and they were there a long time. They were very dry. Lots of them. Again, think of these as the parts. And verse 3. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? So they're very dry. There's lots of them. They're piled up on one another. And the question is, can these bones live? And I answered and I said, O Lord God, you know. 
Again, he said unto me, prophesy unto these bones and say unto them, O you dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will bring upon, bring upon, bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say unto the wind, Thus says the Lord God, Come. From the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. I just want to focus on verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. So all these bones, dry bones, were in the valley. And as I prophesied, I'm starting to hear this rattling. And behold, a shaking. And the bones came together. Bone to his bone. So the question is, did these bones come together in any configuration? Did it, it, it didn't matter how the bones came together? Or was there an expert involved here? Did God, with his expertise, decide which bone connects to which bone? So that when Israel stands up, we don't have a valley of freaks. We have a valley of human beings made in God's image. Because there's expert configuration in how the bones come together. So in the same way, when we read Ephesians 4.16 about the whole body fitly joined together, it is fitly joined together. So you and I may not be a joint. You may be a joint with somebody else. And that person is a joint with somebody else. And that somebody else is a joint with me. This is the expert configuration. And this is what it means that that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. So we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then God configures us so that every joint supplies. And then we as a congregation can supply what the body needs. Look at Acts 15. you're turning there my first job apart from delivering newspapers having a paper route was when I was 15 years old it was a summer job and I got it because I basically took the yellow pages and I started at A and I called every company asking them were they hiring students did they have place for a student and I think I must have been at the letter P no calls back when finally somebody called me back and it was from the letter C uh, Carol's Canadian Metals. Uh, they were a metal factory. And, and so they hired me. And I was so thrilled because I wanted to help out my mom. I didn't want to be a burden. Uh, so I got this summer job. And I went back there every summer, I think for three or four summers. But uh, one summer, I was carrying a big sheet of uh, metal and I was losing my grip. And so I kind of threw it up to catch it again. And the corner of the metal went straight into my arm. And I've got a scar here. Uh, so anyway, get that looked after. But a more serious accident was uh, when I was putting the plates of metal in this machine that punches holes in the, in the metal. And it had, uh, you put um, straps on, and as the puncher comes down, uh, it pulls your arms back to make sure that your arms are not in the way. Well, it malfunctioned. Fortunately, we were punching very small holes in the metal. Because it malfunctioned and my hand stayed there, and it punched a hole straight through my finger. The doctor was floored. He could not understand how it could punch, I have a scar here, how it could punch a hole in my finger and not crush the bone. It, it missed the bone. And so it just punched a hole through the flesh. So I lost my fingernail, but I could have lost the tip of my finger. 
But these things happen to the body. But we carry on. Bones heal. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes there are amputations. But we carry on. Here in Acts 15, and in verse 32, Judas and Silas, being prophets themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words. That's a big part of our function, is to exhort the brethren. And here these prophets were exhorting the brethren with many words. Sounds like sermons that perhaps went over time a little bit. And confirmed them. And after they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles. Notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to abide there still. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. So they went around building up these churches, and now Paul is saying, Let's retrace our steps and see how these congregations are doing. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them, from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. So John Mark was a young man. We know that the church was, uh, or a church, a congregation, was hosted by his mother. And Paul was frustrated by the fact that John Mark abdicated. It was too rough. And so he left them. And Paul, in his wisdom, understanding what they were facing, was saying it's not a good idea to bring John Mark. Barnabas, on the other hand, it says here in verse 17, and Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. So Barnabas was like, no, we have to take John Mark. This is necessary. Barnabas could probably see the need for his development and saying this is a great opportunity for him, especially you know, to take him back to the churches where we came through so he could see for himself the growth and the importance of the work. So Barnabas is saying, we've, we've got to take John Mark. Paul, on the other hand, is saying this is not a good idea. And in verse 39, the contention was so sharp between them, that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. So the body is compacted by that which every joint supplies. And here we have a joint of Paul and Barnabas. And this joint was compacting the body. And then the joint was broken. And it was broken because of another joint with John Mark. That Barnabas and John Mark were a joint that was supplying to the body. And Paul and John Mark were a joint that was supplying to the body. But Paul was saying, I cannot have this man with me. Because what we're facing is so treacherous and so dangerous, we can't have weakness. We can't have somebody who could possibly fall apart. And so this joint was severed. It says the contention was so sharp between them. I think Luke is like not giving us the full story. But he's telling us it was a very sharp contention that they departed asunder. So it sounds like uh, Paul and Barnabas, who were a joint, separated not on the best of terms. It's just like, you go your way, I'll go mine. And so this joint was broken. And the body was, we could say, uh, it was detrimental to the body. There was something that that joint, or those joints could have supplied, that the body was no longer able to receive. But Barnabas had a vision. Just because a part is not working at 100% doesn't mean you throw it out. 
I have my left arm today. It wasn't, there was a point when it wasn't working. Doctor didn't come and say, well, let's cut that off. Let's repair it. Let's repair it. And so look at 2 Timothy. So Barnabas took John Mark, and he worked with John Mark. And, and maybe there was a lesson in there for Paul, something for Paul to learn. But here in 2 Timothy now, verse 4, and uh, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 9, he writes to Timothy, Do your diligence to come shortly unto me. So, so Paul's out there by himself. He needs... Uh, or not just by himself, but he doesn't have all the resources that he needs. And so this joint between him and Timothy was a very strong joint. And he's saying, Timothy, you've got to come to me uh, shortly. Do your diligence to come to me. Why? For Demas has forsaken me. So this is a part that's taken out that needs to be replaced. Having loved this present world and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. So something happened where Paul now sees John Mark totally differently. And he's like, all these people are forsaking me. Timothy, you get here as soon as you can and make sure you bring John Mark. The joint that we have between John Mark and I is very profitable. Yet, earlier, the conflict that he had with Barnabas was so sharp, they went their separate ways. And so Barnabas worked with John Mark, John Mark matured, and now Paul is restoring this joint to say he's profitable. There's something that the body receives from this joint. I want now to go to Matthew 20 to emphasize that the body of Christ is a laboring body. As part, you know, as members of the body, we are not here for comfort. We're here to work. Members of the body of Christ, Christ's body works, and we're here to work. To, you know, we could run the risk, we could run the risk of being like the driver who pulls into a gas station, fill her up, what would you like, premium, fills up the tank, leaves that gas station, and drives aimlessly until he gets to another gas station. Pulls into that gas station, oh, can you fill it up, please? And again, leaves that gas station to get to another gas station. From gas station to gas station with no purpose. That's what it could be like for us. If we're coming from service to service, we get filled, but then we don't use the fuel to do anything. So the gas station is not a destination. It's a means to an end. So Sabbath service is not a destination. It's where we get refueled, and it's a means to an end. We need to do something with the spiritual fuel that we receive from Sabbath to Sabbath. Here in Matthew 20, And verse 1, Jesus Christ tells us, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. He, he doesn't go out early in the morning looking for guests to say, Come to my vineyard, come to my house, and make yourself comfortable. The kingdom of God is like a man, that's a householder, that gets up early in the morning to hire laborers. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and he went about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, then said unto them, Go you also into the vineyard. And whatever is right, I will give you. And they went their way and went out the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. You get the sense that this vineyard is big and that there's a lot of work. 
and not enough laborers. That the harvest is plenty, but there's not enough laborers. And so he's going out, and the purpose of bringing people in to the vineyard is because there's so much work to do. So you can imagine if he, if he finds these men, there's so much work to do if he finds these men in a hammock with lemonade, with their feet up. It's like, what, what on earth? What's this? I hired you for a purpose, and that purpose is to labor. And there's so much work that I'm going to go out and find more. You keep working, I'll go and find more. About the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why stand you here all the day idle? There's work to be done. They said unto him, Because no man has hired us. He said unto them, Go you also into the vineyard, and whatever is right that you'll receive. So when even was come, the lord of the vineyard said unto his steward, Call the laborers, not the guests, the laborers. Call the laborers and give them their hire beginning from the last unto the first. And so we, see, we understand here that those that were hired at the last hour got the same pay as those that were hired at the first. And those that were hired at the first then became upset because they felt like, hey, they only worked an hour. But he says, I agreed with you to pay you a penny for your labor. Why are you upset uh, for what the others uh, are being paid? But that's another point. The, the point that I wanted to make here is that we're hired to labor. That's our purpose. We are hired to labor. We are hired to work. And so we have to have this work orientation. And, and to ha- if we have this work orientation, we realize that output matters. And so we need to figure out very quickly, what is the configuration? What part of the body are you? What part of the body are you? What part of the body am I? And let's get in the right configuration. Let's get the joints working properly. If any parts need repairing, let's repair them. Why? Because there's so much work to be done. There is so much work to be done. We, we don't have the luxury, if the kingdom of God is like this uh, householder that Christ says it is, we don't have the luxury of him coming back. With the, in this case, when he came back, all the laborers had worked as they had agreed to. We don't want to be found where he comes back and we weren't working. We're sitting back saying, I'm not comfortable enough. <laughs> we want to be found working. And so, and we want to optimize our output as a congregation. Look now at John, a couple of scriptures in John, John 5. And we are, we'll hit these scriptures again as we go through our Bible study. I'm not sure when, though. Pastor Murray started the Bible study. I think we got through John 1, 1, one verse. Uh, it's, a, it's a rich, it's a rich uh, narrative, rich gospel. Uh, we're not going to rush it. But we will eventually, God willing, uh, get to John 5. But here in verse 20, I want you to see and note with me just how central, just how central work is. To Christ's mission. In verse 20 of John 5, <clears throat> for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. Does. So God the Father is a working God. He does, God the Father is not just sitting back doing nothing. He's busy. He's working and he shows the Son what he does and he will show him greater works than these. So that the Father has works. The Father works. We have a working God that you may marvel. In verse 36 of the same chapter, But I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So Christ pointed to his work as a witness of who he was. And now he's in heaven, and he says he's the head of the body. We are the body of Jesus Christ. As his body, we understand his mind. God the Father is a working God. Jesus Christ is a working God. We are an extension of Christ's body. or sorry, We are his body. We are members of his body. He's a working God. 
So as members of his body, we are working people. And the work that we do points to Christ. It bears witness of Christ. In verse 38, Thirty-seven. If I do not the works of my Father, don't believe me. And we, we could say the same thing today. We have no right to be believed if we don't do the works of our Father. If we don't do the, the, the will of Christ, it's, it's by doing the will of Christ, that's how we bear witness. Preaching has to be backed up by doing. And people need to look at the works and say, yes, these are in fact the people of God. So if I don't do the works, don't believe me. But if I do the works, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So what is Christ saying here? That you might not believe me, but look at my work. And when you look at my work, that's how you'll know and believe that in fact this is the Father's work. That the Father has a will. The Father has a work that he's doing. And he's doing this and accomplishing this through Christ. Christ is now in heaven. Christ continues to work. He's not going around recruiting members into the body just so that we can say, isn't it nice? Are you saved, sister? Are you saved, brother? Isn't it nice to be saved? And then we go to heaven. He's a working God. And he's recruiting workers. And the work is central to the identity. You might not believe me, but look at the work. And then you'll know that the Father is in me and I'm in him. In chapter 14. And verse 10. Believe you not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. But the Father that dwells in me, he does the work, or the works. So Christ is saying, the work that I do is actually enabled by the Father. It's, it's the Father that's doing the work. So, so this, um, how shall we say this? The value that we put around work has to do with the value that we put on the Father's participation in the work. The fact that God would come to earth and his Father is actually doing the work through him. That his father has a work to do on the earth. Now, does that matter? Does it matter that the God of the universe has a work to do on the earth? If it does, then the work matters. Work is important. There's a, there's a priority that we put to work. And I think this has been diluted by the view that, oh, you know, Christ did it all. We have nothing to do. No, we have work to do. Christ, Christ is always working because his Father is always working. Believe me, verse 11, that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the work's sake, for the very work's sake. Look, kept pointing to the work. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also. So again, this notion that Christ did all the work, we have nothing to do, is false. Yes, Christ did all the work, and he continues to work. And, and if we believe in him, the works that he did, we will also do. Not, and he doesn't stop there. He says, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. So now Father and, the Christ, are in, and Christ are in heaven, and they're directing the work on earth. And we're going to do the work that Christ did. And we're going to do greater work than the work that Christ did. 
So, the body and the members of the body are here to work. We're not here to take comfort. As Pastor Murray pointed with Haggai, where the people got off track because they were just so much prioritizing their own comforts and not the worship of God and not the work of God. We need to be prioritizing the work of God, the worship of God, the reflection of God's will on earth. I want now to also emphasize the point that the body is not just for work, it's also for relationship. The body is also for relationship. In other words, that is to say, I cannot have a relationship with you if we are not separate beings. You have to be you and I have to be me, and, and then we can have a relationship. I have a relationship with my wife. We're not the same person. She's who she is. I'm who I am, and God has brought us together so that we can be one and have a very rich relationship. Christ has a relationship with his father. They're not the same being. Trinitarian doctrine notwithstanding. The father is the father. He has a body. Christ is Christ. He has a body. He's made us in his image and likeness. We have bodies. And it is this, this existence, this embodied existence, that enables us to have relationships. Okay? So if we are the body of Christ... We have a relationship with the Father. If we are the bride of Christ, we have a relationship with Christ. But we have to be embodied to have these relationships. Now, look at Luke 17. And one thing we see with the Ten Commandments is they're designed to preserve relationships. You know, when you look at uh, a, a doctrine, like uh, an ideology, like Islam, it's designed to destroy relationships. It destroys every precious relationship. The Ten Commandments are designed to preserve relationships. And the Ten Commandments are not the end of the commandments. We have many commandments that extend from the Ten Commandments, Here's one, Luke 17 and verse 1. Then said he unto the disciples, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. So we're not going to get through this life without offenses. Christ is saying it's impossible. We, I thought on this journey that I could get from here to there without any offenses. Jesus Christ is saying that's impossible, right? He's disabusing us of that. Offenses are going to come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he be cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against you, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. This is the command. And again, it's all about preserving relationships. We are embodied beings. We are separate beings. We have our own mind, our own will, our own identity. We are designed to be in relationship. And so here he's preserving relationship by saying, offenses are going to come, but if repentance comes with it, forgive even if it happens repeatedly. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. This is your, what you're asking for here is quite, it's impossible. It's humanly impossible. Can you please increase our faith? And the Lord said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea and it should obey you. But which of you, this is now speaking to relationship, but which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him, by and by, when he is come from the field, 
go and sit down to eat. And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird yourself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterwards you shall eat and drink. So if we combine this with the other metaphor or, or parable of the vineyard, and we've been laboring in the vineyard all day, and now we come in, he's saying, don't expect me to say, make yourself comfortable. You're my servant. Now that you've come in from working in the vineyard, go and make me my meal. So they're saying, Lord, increase our faith. This is very difficult for us to do. We hold grudges. We, we were hurt. We don't want to do this. He's saying increase our faith. Or they're saying increase our faith. He's saying, you know, if you had faith, this is what you could do. But you know what? It's not about you. It's about me. Your servants. Don't, don't, don't lose the plot. This is not about you. It's not about how comfortable you are. This is about doing my will. You're in relationship with me. You have a body. I have a body. You're a servant. I'm the master. So, yeah, I can increase your faith, but you're focused on yourself. Focus on me. Again, as Pastor Murray said, as we rebuild, we want the center of the rebuilding effort to be the worship of God. Which of you, having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by when he has come in from the field, Go on, make yourself comfortable, have a meal, sit down, make sure you're looked after. And will not rather say unto him, now that you're here, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken. And afterward you shall eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I don't think so. So likewise you... When you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. So he's trying to shift them from this self-centered orientation. Lord, increase our faith so that we can do this. He's trying to shift them from that to you're serving me. And when you do everything I command you, don't congratulate yourself. All you've done is what you've been commanded. So we've got to figure out how to do this and then go beyond this to become profitable. He's made such a big investment in us that if we only do what we're commanded to do, it's break even. So the question is, how can we be profitable servants? Let's go back to Ephesians 4. So here in Luke 17, when, what he's dealing with is relationships of the members with each other. It's, Im, it's, it's impossible that offenses do not come. Offenses are going to come. But make sure you handle them in this way. There's forgiveness and we move on. And when we've done all of that, we're unprofitable. In Ephesians 4, we were in verse 16, looking at what every joint supplies and that each part has to be effective. In verse 17, This I say, therefore, and I testify in the Lord, that you, from now on, you don't walk as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. This is the shift that we have to make, that it's not about us. And you can meet some brilliant, brilliant people, but there's vanity in the mind. They're, They're driven, they're accomplishing great things, but there's vanity in the mind. They want, they want the praise of men. We're not to be like this. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Very strong words, but this is the human condition. We've been saved out of this or brought out of this condition. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That you put off concerning the former conversation or conduct the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. 
So there's the vanity of mind, and there's the renewal of mind. And there's an appeal that Paul is making here for us to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. And that we put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, this is, this is relationship. So this is how the parts, the members, relate to one another. Putting away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. So do the opposite. Why? Because we're members one of another. So this is the vanity of mind says, I matter. The renewal of mind says, oh, we're members of each other. Oh, we're members of Christ. You're a part of Christ's body. I'm a part of Christ's body. And we're just parts. And so the whole vanity of mind gets dislodged. This is now, this is about Christ's mind and how Christ's mind directs the members of his body. I was reading a a scientific article that was talking about the eyes. And it was saying that when we move our eyes, scientists have just discovered that if you keep your head still and you move your eyes from side to side, your eardrums move. And they never knew this before. So somebody discovered this, but they don't know why. So they've been analyzing it, and what they've said now is it's not actually true that when we move our eyes, our eardrums move. What they've uncovered is that just before we move our eyes, our eardrums move. Then our eyes move. So once we send the command to the eyes to move the eyes, it's like the, ear, the, the brain is saying to the ears, get ready. I, I, want, I want to pay attention to something over there. Ears, zero in over there as well. So it's, it's quite fascinating to them. But this, again, this is the mystery of the body, and it's expertly made. And we need to know what parts of the body are we, and are we following the mind of Christ, or do we have our own mind, and when Christ is trying to direct his body, it's not functioning properly. So we we speak the truth to each other. Why? Because we're members of each other. We wouldn't lie to each other. Be you angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. The devil is constantly going to try to get in to disrupt us. We can't give him any platform, any opportunity. Let him that stole steal no more. Do the opposite. Rather, let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needs. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearer. So, Nothing corrupt, nothing corrosive, nothing that's going to destroy the body, nothing that's going to enervate or weaken the body is going to come out of our mouth. We do the opposite. What comes out of our mouth is that which edifies, that which builds up, that which encourages. So throughout this, he's showing the old man and how that mind works and the new man and how that mind works. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And I, you know, I wonder if Paul maybe personally learned this with the, 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 the anger and the collision that he had with Barnabas. And then later saw how valuable Mark was. Maybe this is from personal learning. And be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. For Christ's sake, God has forgiven us. Even so, we forgive each other. Be you, therefore, followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. And has given himself for us, an offering, and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. So this shows us how the effectual, verse 16, talks about the effectual working in the measure of every part. So the Holy Spirit is in every part. And then from verses 17 through to 5-2, we are understanding how the Spirit should influence our thinking. It's not saying that we are the same parts, but it's saying that we have the same mind. 
It's the mind of Christ. So if from verse 17 to 5-2, we embrace this opposite thinking. There's the natural thinking, and then there's the opposite. If we embrace the opposite, the new man thinking, the Christ-level thinking, that's what enables us, whatever part we are in the body, to be optimized. Then as we join with, according to the configuration, as we join with the other parts of the body that we are adjacent to, then the joints can supply edification, nourishment, building up to the body. But this passage from 17 to 5.2, and probably further on, but I'll stop it at 5.2, this is the thinking. This is the effectual working of the spirit in every part that enables the parts to come together in any configuration that the master chooses. And then those joints supply. As we wind down, the final point I want to make is there's no rewind button. None. It just does not exist. You know, if you're doing a recording, let's say, and uh, you say something you didn't quite like the way that came out, you can hit stop, rewind, try it again, re-record, and then you can publish. And no one ever need know that there was a mistake in the recording. You've rewound, you've corrected, and go again. God has designed this life in such a way that there's no rewind button. None. In other words, it's impossible to reclaim past time. Whatever happened in the past, there's nothing we can do to go back in time and correct it. That time is gone. And time inexorably works one way. Philippians 3. And as much as that's said with some regret that we can't go back, at the same time, There's a lot to rejoice because of what Christ is doing. That the work of Christ is to negate the negative effects of the past, to take them away. And Paul understood this. Look at Philippians 3. Philippians 3 and verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I'm not there yet. I haven't made it yet. But this one thing I do, if there's one thing that Paul did, he's saying this is it. This is the one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind. There's no rewind button. I can't do anything about what's behind. So I'm forgetting those things which are behind. And instead, I'm reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He presses. And that's the question for us. Are we pressing? Are we coasting or are we pressing? Are we workers? Are we people that understand the amount of work that needs to be done and we're like, okay, God, give me that. I'll take that off the list. I'll get that done. And then as soon as that's done, we're back. Uh, What's the next thing on the list? Or are we coasters? Going from gas station to gas station saying, fill her up. And then we don't know where we're driving. We're just burning gas until we get to the next gas station. Or do we take this fuel And say, God, give it to me. I'll do it. Who do you want me to do it with? Let's go. Let's go. Because there's no rewind. So maybe there's regrets in the past. But we have a future that we can build treasure and put that treasure in the chest. So we can look forward to the return of Christ. I press I'm forgetting those things which are behind. I'm reaching forth to those things which are before. And I'm pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling. It's a very high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be mature, be thus minded. Let's think like this. 
And if in anything you be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Look at John 9. Look at the words of our Lord. John 9. In verse 1, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither has this man sinned nor his parents but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So Christ is walking with his disciples, and there's a man who's blind from birth. And the disciples are asking, like, okay, did he sin that that brought this blindness onto him, or was it his parents? And Christ answers and says, he didn't sin, and his parents didn't sin. But here's a great opportunity for me to do the work of God so that you can believe that I am, in fact, the Christ. All of this to say, if we are ready, God will put opportunities in our path that will give us the opportunity to work the work of God. And it's not like, you know, this happened for what it's like. It's there as an opportunity for us to work the work of God. That's it. So because of this man's blindness, it was an opportunity for Christ to make manifest the works of God. Now he says in verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me. That's the mind of Christ. And that's the mind that we want to have. I must work the works of him that sent me. That's what, that's what I'm about. That's what we're about. What what configuration do we need to get in? Let's go. What's next on the list? Let's go. Okay, that's done. That's behind. What's in the future? Let's press and let's get this work done. There's so much work, it's overwhelming. Pray God send more laborers into the harvest. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. Christ says, the night comes When no man can work. Now the opportunities are gone. Whatever reward, whatever opportunity for reward we had to work the works of him that sent us, the door is now closed. We can't work anymore. So whatever treasures we've built up, we've built up. And if we haven't built up, it's too late. Because the night has fallen. And we can't work in the night. So whatever daytime is left, let's be about our father's business. He says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. I want to just read to you part of an article by John Hayward of Breitbart News. This was published on January 25th. Erdogan, Islamic education will forge a pious generation to build a new civilization Turkey. He says, Turkey was long renowned for its secular government, a modern state guided by the vision of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk when he built the Republic of Turkey from the ashes of the Ottoman Empire in the early years of the last century. So he basically, Ataturk, who was running Turkey in the 1920s, he said, we're done with Islam. You know, for us to get such a, a beating in World War I, Allah is not Akbar. We're done. And he made Turkey a Western civilization. Now, and says he, he built the Republic of Turkey from the ashes of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire ruled half the world. And then it was destroyed. A fatal wound. And he, he built it up from the ashes, but as a secular country. The current president... Recep Tayyip Erdogan has the opposite vision of Turkey 
as a Muslim state at the heart of a new Ottoman Empire. Happening now. These guys are looking back into their glorious past. And they're saying, what happened? Why did we abandon this? We need to put the Kafirs in their place and build our empire off their backs. And that's what he's doing. Here in Canada, by Christine Douglas Williams, an article she published, leaked intelligence documents show greater threat of Islamic terror than government admits. Leaked documents from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, that service, that CSIS, show that the intelligence service is far more concerned with Islamic terrorism behind closed doors than the left-wing Trudeau government will admit in public. One of the documents, a report from a committee hearing in October of 2016, states, quote, the service has never before faced a terrorist threat of the scope, scale, and complexity of Sunni Islamist-inspired terrorism. They've never seen this before. Meanwhile, we're being reassured everything's fine. Go back to sleep. Canadian Islamic radicals returning from fighting for jihadist groups in the Middle East have become a source of concern for CSIS, which says, quote, extremists returning to Canada have the potential to pose a significant threat to our national security. One of the documents quotes a CSIS officer who said, I should point out that we remain concerned about the number of individuals that we are not aware of or about whom we have incomplete information due to the significant operational challenges associated with such investigations. In other words, we have no clue. We know we're under siege. We know the threat has heightened. It's very complex. And we know we're in the, we're the intelligence service. We have no clue. Daniel 12. We must work while it is day. For the night comes when no man can work. So says our Lord. The night is coming when no man can work. Daniel 12, verse 1. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of your people. So we're, we can't do anything now. Now it requires supernatural intervention. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. So the night comes when no man can work. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. We ensure our place in this book of life by doing the will of God. If God has a will and we have an opposite will, we're not in this book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some who have the opposite will to God, to shame and everlasting contempt. Notice verse 3. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness. I hope that sounds like work to you. I hope that doesn't sound like wish upon a star and people will turn to righteousness. I hope this sounds like effort, blood, sweat, and tears to get this word out. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we figure out our configuration where you're either directly out there proclaiming the gospel or you're supporting those who are out there proclaiming the gospel? But we've got to figure out our configuration because the body is expertly put together. The joints come together by expertise by the Father. We're placed in the body exactly where it pleases him. And this is the work. But the night comes when no man can work. The time is now. They that turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars 
forever and ever. Work now, reward later. We're not going to come in and put up our feet now and expect reward. We're here to work. We're going to conclude in 1 Corinthians 15. But I would say, and this is open for discussion. I want to ask you in this sermon discussion. I believe that there are three categories of work at the highest level. So all the work that we do falls into one of these three categories. And I would ask you to challenge me on this. Category one is feeding the flock. So we're either doing the work of nourishing the body. Category two is edifying the body, building it up. So it's got to be nourished and it's got to be built up, strengthened. And category three is preaching the gospel. So we're either feeding the flock, building up the body, or preaching the gospel. And everything we do, I believe, falls into one of these three categories. I'd be open to your thoughts on this. So I mentioned at the beginning how I was running in this race, and I tripped, and all I saw was feet, and I broke my arm, and I was in a lot of uh, agony and pain, and the arm had to be reset, but it healed. Today, I was going to say it's as good as new. It actually feels better than new. I can do more with my left hand today than I could when I was 11. So it's healed completely. So a break in the body is no big deal. It can be healed. And we saw that with John Mark and Paul. There was a break. Paul wanted nothing to do with John Mark. To the point where he was willing to sacrifice his relationship with Barnabas in order to ensure that John Mark is not on the journey with them. And then later we see him saying to Timothy, make sure you bring John Mark. He's profitable. That now this is a stronger joint than it was before. So all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we are not discouraged by breaks. We are not discouraged by atrophy. We are encouraged by the Spirit of God. And so we conclude... In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast. Be you steadfast. Be you steadfast. Unmovable. You can't be moved. You are very clear what you're a part of. You are very clear about who's called you and what he's called you to do. You are unmovable. And... You are always abounding in the work of the Lord. You've got it. You're not here to be comfortable. You're not here to have things your way. You're here to work. I'm here to work. And not just work, kind of reluctantly work, but abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor, your work, is not in vain in the Lord. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.